This is the Microsoft Libraries and Museums podcast, a show dedicated to exploring digital transformation with organizations from around the world. I'm Emily Kotecki. In season three, we are talking about how museums and libraries are leveraging mixed reality to inspire awe and wonder, magic and creativity in visitors. Today, I'm joined by Matt Cook, Digital Scholarship Program Manager at Harvard Library. Matt, thanks for being here. Thank you, Emily. I'm great to be here. Uh, Matt, many of us have heard of Harvard, um, but tell us about the Harvard Library. What is it known for? We're known for our collections, uh, which are extensive. And the total collections include 6 million digitized items, 21 million volumes, 400 million manuscripts, more than a million maps, tens of millions of digital images. Not only were we the oldest library system in the United States, but we're also the world's largest academic library. So that also extends to staff. We have 700 staff across 28 libraries. So a big footprint for an academic library in terms of collection size and scope and history and the staff and expertise associated with those collections. What is the relationship between the university and the library when it comes to supporting or experimenting with new technologies? So many staff, you're a digital scholarship program manager. What is that relationship like when it comes to innovating? Yeah, great question. I think it's still uh, a work in progress, the role of the technology librarian at Harvard and elsewhere. Um, we are learning as we go, as the technology evolves. So. It's clear that libraries at all levels are incorporating and circulating more than just book material. Uh, you can look at a public library or go to a public library and check out movies and DVDs. We're all familiar with that. That's a super popular service. You can go and sit on a computer and do research at a public library. So that same mentality, the philosophy of knowledge in all forms has informed the direction of Harvard Library as well. So you can see an example of that in our media lab that's in Lamont Library, where we're doing technology lending. So we can let you, the student, borrow everything you need to produce a video for class as part of your term project or a podcast, as well as all the software you need to edit that content. So we're talking about knowledge production as well as access to knowledge in all forms. We're talking about media uh, that is being produced rather than simply term papers. So it's the freedom to sort of express yourself and your scholarship in multiple forms, and that includes students, faculty, and staff. So I'm part of that sort of evolution revolution, which is scholarship now includes these outputs and includes these technologies, and someone needs to be there to help guide people through the process of producing and accessing this new scholarly content. I love what you said about it's a philosophy of knowledge in all forms and thinking about this, these outputs are not just written text anymore, but you can make these ideas and concepts and complicated, um, you know, pieces of information into different forms. And I understand that you, there's two examples uh, of mixed reality that we're going to dive into today. One is VR headsets for a chemistry class. Let's start there. Um, tell us about that project. Sure, absolutely. So uh, through internal grant funding, uh, librarians at Harvard Library were able to purchase and deploy 
virtual reality headsets in the classroom as part of a curricular support effort. Um, this kind of builds on the technology lending that I mentioned earlier. Or if as librarians, you're working with us and you're an instructor or faculty member, we can help you with all the logistical and software and sort of coordination that goes into getting this technology into your classroom. So one example of this, which we did at scale is organic chemistry class, uh, but we were able to deploy Oculus Quest virtual reality headsets for more than 200 students over the course of a week. And that's sort of the full VR experience. If you know about headset hardware, you know how far we've come in terms of mobile support for this. So this is a complete class, uh, something like 30 students at a time. Every student had their own headset and they were able to collaborate using a software called Nanom, which is a molecule visualization tool uh, in teams in pairs. So we have a lot of sort of firsts here. We have this hundreds of students over a relatively short time period engaging with course content uh, that is specific to their syllabi. So they're looking at molecules that correspond to what they're meant to learn in class. So we didn't have to change a lot about the syllabi in this class. It really fit right in. Uh, and then the other sort of innovation here is we're able to, to test the impact of that deployment on the students, specifically on their sense of self-efficacy or how confident they felt in the course material that they learned with the headsets. I want to get to the impact in a minute, but I guess I want to step back to and just think about creating this content. Did you create it? Did the professor approach you? How does that relationship work? Yeah, that's a great question. So we are, as librarians, sort of acting as the guides, the intermediaries, the navigators here, because it's not clear that every faculty member that wants to engage with this technology uh, has the bandwidth to spec all of the software that might be required to figure out the logistics, to figure out the ergonomics and the issues of contemporary virtual reality headset hardware. So we we have the relationship with the software vendor who, I'm, who I mentioned in this case is Nanome. They have a commercial license uh, and they're working with like uh, pharmaceutical companies to do new drug development, for example. So you can visualize and create molecules in virtual reality with their software. So as librarians, we see this happening out in the commercial space, for example. And then we see these students that could benefit from this sort of visualization technology. And we put two and two together. We work to connect the tools and the benefits of the tools with the faculty member who may have no idea that this is a possibility. And that's sort of our role. How do you feel like the VR experience was able to leverage that unique space of being in VR so that you're introducing new ways of learning to the students? Totally, yeah. So by their nature, molecules exist in 3D space in the real world. Uh, to look at them on a textbook page or even on a desktop is not how they were meant to be seen. Uh, but the other double problem is they're typically too small to be seen by the human eye. The idea is to put the object of study in front of the student in a natural and intuitive way. And if the object of study exists in the world, then there's a good chance virtual reality has a role to play and benefits to offer. In this case, the object of study was molecules. And we were able to use virtual reality to put molecules in front of students and help them understand the shape and structure of those molecules. 
you mentioned that you tested this. Um, what was the impact on learning for the students after going through this VR experience? Absolutely. So this is a preliminary study, a pilot study. Um, so our assessment mechanisms were um, relatively simplistic. We use qualitative methods associated with self-reported self-efficacy and usability. So we had surveys basically that we administered you know, before and after the VR exercise. And we asked students to report how confident they felt in the course content that they were engaged with during class time in virtual reality. Uh, and those results, which are in print, they've been published, uh, were very promising. Students, as compared to the desktop experience, reported that they were much more confident uh, in the course content and specifically in the 3D molecules versus what they had traditionally seen, which was the 2D representation of the same molecule. So that's a good step in the right direction. And this is research we can build on as librarians as we deploy stricter and stricter study and testing protocols. So there are other ways we can go down the line to measure in even more specific detail what the impact is on learning. But this is a good first step, and this is sort of a way for us to get our foot in the door as librarians with a research program, uh, which is not super typical, um, but interesting and exciting to not just provide the faculty member with the technology, but also the justification and the evidence that the technology is working. For sure. I want to turn to the other project that you've also done at uh, Harvard Library is, is a facility scan um, of the Widener Library. And I wonder if you could actually just describe the scale and the uh, enormity of the Widener Library and then about that project of why did you scan it? Just like personally, I walk around Widener Library when I take my breaks, like my office is in the basement of Widener Library, the ground floor. So it's it's endless. The collections are endless. The book stacks are endless. The reading rooms are gorgeous and massive and grand. Just within the library, I'm looking here, uh, there's more than 450 languages represented. There's 6 million items. Uh, and there's also a Gutenberg Bible on display. So that's just like off the top. Um, let's see here, 50 miles of shelves and the capacity to hold 3 million volumes. So we did with in conjunction with Matterport, deploy and host uh, and publish a 3D scan of the facility. It's not the entire facility, it's sort of the primary like walkways. So like the central entryway up to the reading room, uh, one level of stacks, which is the bookshelves. But even within that, uh, it's an unprecedented level of access because prior to this scanning, um, the public had no way to see these spaces. So Harvard is a private institution. You can't walk in and take a tour off the street, which is sad because it is so beautiful and so many people would want to see it. So one of the original motivations, and this is pre-COVID, is just to provide public with a tour, with access. And because the Matterport scan is so you know high quality, uh, it's almost like you're, you're there. So it's a really high quality surrogate tour experience, first of all. Second of all, just for sort of selfish internal use, we can start planning our own spaces. So if we want to like think about our innovation or a remodel or decoration or rearrangement of furniture, we can start planning remotely using this data. That's an internal use case. And then the third thing you'll see uh, if you look at the model, which is free and online right now, is that you can link digital content with 
physical spaces. So you can place annotations on the tour, in the reading room, in the spaces. And what we've done is link historical imagery, for example, or links to library collection uh, objects, items in the catalog, um, or more information about the architecture and art within the building. So these are things that you might not know if you're just walking through, but we can actually link these media with physical parts of the building, which is a super exciting use case that I think we'll continue to build on. So it sounds like one of the reasons you or the library wanted to create this scan was to increase access, to let more people see the building and, and, and see what it's like in there. So in, in thinking about that idea of access, who did you think was going to use this? And maybe if you have the analytics and who is actually using the 3D tour? We were kind of looking at the, the tourist crowd uh, and the sort of bottleneck at the front door as our primary, you know, problem to solve when we started developing this content. Again, this is prior to COVID, but now we're seeing, you know, recruitment use cases. Now we're seeing students that can't come to campus or incoming freshmen or high school students that are thinking about applying, making use of this content because it's almost like being there. It's super high quality uh, and it's just not feasible for, for folks to travel here right now and visit. In terms of use case or in terms of analytics, yes, we've had well over 100,000 views of the space since it launched. This was, I believe, 20, late 2019, or maybe it was 2020, early 2020. Um, but it's circulating and the, the views are consistent and the traffic is sort of steady. Do you play, are there plans to um, scan more of the library? Yeah, in fact, there's a whole initiative called Virtual Harvard and much of campus has been scanned inside and out. So the idea here is to build a, I think the term now is metaverse, so like a virtual surrogate campus um, for sort of remote access, like we've learned is so important during COVID, but also to have sort of like a place to congregate online that looks and feels like the Harvard campus. So we can, and it is possible to recreate the entire campus inside and out and have virtual people interact in it. Now, we haven't gotten as far as launching what that would be right now we just have individual pieces that are kind of floating around for different purposes but all of that technology is sort of being tested on campus through various groups and once all the pieces are put together you know virtual harvard will be a whole world a whole universe in and of itself when you think about these two projects of vr and facility scanning how scalable or transferable are the ideas of these projects when you think about other libraries around the world, not just at Harvard? Yeah, totally. Uh, I'm optimistic because I, I do think in the case of VR that the headset hardware will become less sort of obtrusive and more people will have just access to it in their home and on their head. So we've seen, you know, uh, Apple developing their glasses. HoloLens is a good example. Like these are these are products that are getting slimmer and lighter and easier to afford. And so the goal uh, at the end of the day, I think will be not to provide hardware for everyone. And this is like sort of to answer your scale question, it will be to provide content and experiences for the student. So the role of librarians and libraries here is uh, in, envision how our collections, which in many cases are unique, or let's just say for every library, including a public library, that has like a local history 
section, there is something unique that you can hope to share in this virtual environment, in this virtual world. So we didn't even get into like 3D scanning, which is another sort of effort. There are things that are not books in Harvard Library collections that are difficult to access historically. You know, you have to make a reservation or be a certified sort of researcher with an agenda to get in and look at some of these objects. These are museum objects or rare materials. You know, these things can all be made available online and in virtual reality. And that is sort of, I think, the, the way we will scale. And that is sort of the library of the future. So you can imagine millions and millions of scans that are browsable and accessible on your headset, on the train, on your way to the class or on your way to work. These are This is sort of the future of access. We're producing and providing access to objects that were typically locked away in archives. And we're producing it at such a high quality that you can do research with these objects in the same way you can do research with a book. It seems to just circle back to your idea at the beginning of librarians being now these people who can shepherd in this evolution of how the library is used and the revolution that's happening within libraries. So I want to thank you, uh, Matt Cook, Digital Scholarship Program Manager at Harvard Library. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today. Thanks, Emily. It was a great chat. At the end of every episode, we hear from Catherine Devine, Global Business Strategy Leader for Libraries and Museums at Microsoft. Catherine? Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Emily, and thanks, Matt. Such an interesting conversation. I really like how Matt talks about this idea of extending the definition of what a library is and extending from books to technology uh, lending and also really taking that other kind of angle here, which is it's not just about accessing knowledge that exists, but about creating um, knowledge in new ways with new technologies. And then he sort of moves into something I feel very passionately about, which is he talks about this chemistry um, example where you're really creating a very immersive experience and that's going to always be better, and we've proven it, be better in achieving learning goals than a 2D, a traditional 2D. And sometimes we take for granted how we, we sort of interface with the world without actually realising that technology is bringing us opportunities around ways to be even more effective than we are. And then, you know, I think he makes an, another point at the end there that, you know, is really close to my heart. And, and this is about access, access to precious collections that we don't necessarily um, today for good reason is very limited in terms of who can access and see. And, and I often think about all the treasures of the world that are hidden away that, you know, the, that we're not getting to experience, but we don't have to experience them in real life. We can still see it through all of this um, example of technology, um, 3D imaging, virtual reality, all of these kinds of things to be able to experience these very precious um, objects, and in fact, all objects really, um, in a way that you know doesn't require you to come to the building and have a special level of access. And you know, finally, I think the point that he makes, he makes so many great points, <laughs> finally the point that he makes that really resonated with me is, um, about where the focus on libraries is, is, is becomes to be about how you can experience collections in new ways and thinking about content rather than thinking about devices. And, you know, we saw this with the smartphone era. Um, in, initially, we had to lend re, 
smartphones out to people. But ultimately, we got to a point where everybody had them and it became about the content that we created. And we're going to see the same thing with uh, virtual and mixed reality to technology is taking, um, it's going to become slimmer and more available and more accessible and eventually everybody will have it and it'll just be like a pair of glasses. And at that point, we don't have to worry about giving out the technology or making it available in a very limited way. But really, this is about um, being accessible to to everyone to experience in new ways. So I'll pause there because <laughs> that's a lot of sort of reflection, but, you know, such an interesting conversation. Really look forward to our next episode. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Matt. And thank you to all of our listeners. If you're interested in learning more about what's happening at Harvard Library, we have put some links in the show description, as well as a link to the full transcript. The next episode of the Microsoft Libraries and Museums podcast will be out next Monday. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Emily Kotecki.